This is Welcome Home Radio from the Fresno Association of Realtors on 940 KYNO. Well, good morning and welcome to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scardino, your host on our Valley's most informative real estate talk show. And this hour is being brought to you by the Fresno Association of Realtors and the many affiliate members and realtor members that we have. Affiliates being escrow companies, lenders, attorneys, home inspectors, everybody who might be affiliated with an escrow transaction. And that's what makes this show so good and why we are now in our third decade. Now, somebody said, wait a minute, it's only been 15 years. Well, that's my point. Be careful when you listen to headlines. Third decade of Welcome Home Radio. Well, we did start in 09, so that's one decade. The 10s was another, and now the 20s. But it's really only 15 years that we've been doing this. And anyway, today we have a couple of great guests. It's going to be a very informative show. Um, and I'm going to really pay attention and take notes because we're going to talk about a topic that is, well, I'm going to say very detailed, but it has a huge effect on, on real estate and how you take title. And here in the studio, we have Robin Bashirs. She is the escrow manager for Chicago Title. Good morning. Good morning, Don. And I understand you've been in the escrow business how many years 34 years 34 yes. so you've seen a thing or two and probably know a thing or two couple things yes <laughs> okay and if you would please remember to share those with us today <laughs> absolutely absolutely all right now is your family listening in I believe my husband is listening in possibly my son if he's not still asleep <laughs> oh must be a teenager <laughs> no but 21 close enough oh yeah okay still at that sleeping in late yes. stage yes we also have with us here brian catone uh brian is a local real estate attorney and also the owner of catone and associates a real estate brokerage uh catone real estate group and oh. catone and associates is my firm Ah, okay. Close. The, the group, and I think that's your son, Vito, that uh, had to force that on you, right? Well, not force me. I got him into it, so I had to uh, help him out, and uh, he upstarted his own company. So, Okay. It's been great. Which one of you is the broker? I'm the broker until he takes his broker's exam, I believe, in a month or two. Mm -hmm. So he will be taking over that spot, and I'll just be on the sidelines advising. All right. Very good. So uh, family real estate. Yes. All right. It, and um, this is good to have an escrow manager and a real estate attorney here uh, on the same show mm -hmm. because we can really dig deep into how to take title, when not to add somebody on title, and what to do when you feel like you should add somebody on title. So. For our listeners out there, if you own a home or you plan to own one, um, really listen in because this is how you protect your investment. Um, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't give the your pink slip to your car to a stranger, or, or you wouldn't mm -hmm. um, just add somebody on just for the heck of it. Uh, so, and same thing with your home. 
only your home's a bigger investment. Mm -hmm. I did want to first give some statistics because um, this is the middle of June now. And so the May statistics are in. Um, I do want to tell you that in two, May of 2022, the median selling price was $408,000. So, and, and then right after May of 2022, people started talking about a crash and, oh, I'm gonna wait. Uh, prices are gonna drop. They never could have sustained. Well, here we are, the final numbers for May of 2023. And this is Fresno County, single family residences. We're at 410,000. So it actually went up $2,000. So that big crash that you were thinking might happen or as the realtors say, you know, oh yeah, as your brother-in-law would have predicted, um, that real estate expert that used to have a real estate license back in Texas 30 years ago, the, the experts. Um, and my apologies to any brother-in-laws out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, in speaking, in, in, a lot of times people thought, well, gee, this is going to be another foreclosure crash, a, a housing crash. Well, for the month of May, there were 613 souls in Fresno County. Four of those were foreclosures. Four out of 613 were foreclosures. And I think I, I heard this many years ago that an average market has two to three percent foreclosure sales. So we're not even not even at one percent. Somebody might say, ah, but what about short sales? There was one short sale. And I'm gonna be honest, that even surprised me. Mm -hmm. But then I looked at the the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. That person only bought nine months ago and just it could not have been a very big short sale right because it actually sold for a little bit more than it did nine months ago but they had closing costs on there and such all right enough for the statistics um, what Robin in the escrow business mm -hmm. what are you saying about stats do, do people come in worried about their their home's value or no we we aren't seeing a lot of that we we're seeing um i mean we're not seeing strength like we did the past couple of years but we're also not seeing any refinances whatsoever i mean that is very rare right now and i think of course as you know interest rates have gone way way up um and so people aren't refinancing as much but the housing market i think I think it's still strong. Um, the only thing is there's, there's not much inventory. Sellers don't want to sell, and what I'm hearing from them is the reason they don't want to sell is because what are they going to pay for the next, for the next property and how much they're going to pay in interest. So I, I think I agree with you. The housing market is strong as far as um, sales price goes, but as far as inventory, no, we're not, we're not seeing a whole lot of it. I have an answer for you on why why would they want to sell and this kind of goes back a few years and this is the way it it was in normal years in real estate it's so that if somebody needs to make a major move up mm -hmm. or a major move down now it's worth paying 
the the extra interest rate. Yes. Um, or, or I shouldn't say extra because I really think six to seven is more normal than three uh, ever was. I agree. Right. And I think I think where they're where they're missing it is at some point things are going to change and those interest rates are going to come down again. I, I believe um, just because of what history has told us, right? And so we probably will see a boom in those in those refinances. So it, it is a good time, I think, to sell and to buy. I hope my old real estate, fi- not old, but my real estate finance professor from Fresno State is listening because <laughs> he showed us on the chalkboard some big mathematical calculation mm-hmm. of why interest rates would never fall below 12% again. Mm. <laughs> and... Can you believe he gave me a C in that class too? Oh my gosh, Just amazing. Could, that's right. Uh, Brian, what are you seeing out there as far as the market? Well, I the, the same. Uh, interest rates are probably the most important over price even because it, it affects what you, know, what you can get into. Uh, when interest rates are lower, you can get a, a bigger, more expensive house. And uh, your monthly payment, it affects your mos- monthly payment. So, uh, but we are coming into an election year, and mm-hmm. I would think that interest rates will drop a little bit uh, because of the election. I they, agree. They typically do. Interesting. Now, here's something to think about, too. And um, for all the years I've been in this business, I just discovered this a few weeks ago. All right. I, I finally did some numbers, and I'm going to give you what a principal and interest payment would be at um, 6% interest for 30 years. On $100,000, it's $600 at 6%. So that's uh, 6%, $100,000. Let's cut that in half to 3%. So you would think it would go down to 300. No, it only goes to 422. $422 $422 for that hundred that per hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. So even though you cut it in half, it, it didn't go in half. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to see. It's puzzling. You must have come a long way since it's gone. <laughs> well, I told you I just figured this out a few weeks ago. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good point. I think I need to call him and say, hey, I want you to revisit that, that grade. <laughs> All right. So anyway, talk to your trusted professionals in the real estate industry mm-hmm. to get all the real facts so that you know that you can do it or, or if you can't and you have to wait, then so be it. But at least you know you have your goal. Um, all right. How if Let's go to the attorney side now. How important is it for someone to take title to a home? They're, they're buying their first home, let's say. Uh, how important is taking title? Well, it, it, it's very important. Uh, it, it's going to depend also if you're married, whether you have kids and whatnot. Uh, I think if you own real estate, uh, residence, I, I think you should be taking it. I think you should have a trust, and I think you should take it in the name of the trust. Um, you want to avoid probate. Probate is expensive. It can be messy. Uh, there's objections. You have to deal with the court. So you should be forming a trust. People think that, oh, I don't have enough assets for a trust. 
that's really not the issue. If you own a home, you have enough assets for a trust, you should be getting into a trust and you should be avoiding probate. And uh, you don't want to leave a mess behind for either your spouse or your kids. Mm -hmm. and, and if you don't mind if I interject there just a little bit, because I'll tell you just a quick story. Um, personally speaking, my husband's uh, family had to go through probate. Um, our family went through a trust. And when I say families, I mean me and my siblings, him and him, his siblings. And the probate was far more difficult than the trust, than selling the um, homes in a trust. My husband's family, kind of same situation, couple of houses to sell um, after his mother and father passed away. My family, couple houses to sell or to go through what we needed to go through. Um, and no problems with the trust side because we made mom and dad me and and my sisters are all escrow we're all escrow officers at the time we made mom and dad um put a trust in place when dad got sick and so when mother finally um when she passed away um the trust was there and it was just so easy to uh, maneuver and navigate through that because it was all mapped out in the trust whereas the probate took an entire year there was a lot of like you say a lot of fighting um, and there was there was just a real uh, discrepancy there as to who got what, and it was um, it was it was painful for me to watch, um, but it was um, it was a lesson, definitely a lesson. Yeah, and when a parent passes, the last thing you want is troubles mm -hmm. yes. with their their home or something. So, for our listeners, we're going to our next our first commercial break, but when we get back, we're going to go more into what is probate. What is a trust? Mm -hmm. And why are they good or bad? So stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio, 940 KYNO. I'm proud of the house we built. It's stronger than sticks, stones, and steel. It's not a big place sitting up well, Welcome here. back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host. Here in the studio, we have Brian Catone, a local real estate attorney and a real estate broker, and we have Robin Bashirs, an escrow manager with Chicago Title, and our intro music was perfect. Good job, Bobby. And that would be, I'm proud of this house we built. So we built a home, how do we protect it with good title? So um, I heard in the last segment, probate, and probate can be painful. From each of your different perspectives, tell us what probate is. And then, but let me start off with the realtor's take on probate. It's trouble. Okay, Brian, you go. <laughs> okay, so if uh, if you pass without a trust, you're going to leave behind your assets, and your children are going to have to go into a probate proceeding. Now, there's various levels of probate. If you have a smaller estate, 150 or 160 thousand dollars or less, it's a more streamlined process. But most people, if you own a home, your, your estate is gonna be worth more than 150 to $160,000, and you're gonna to have to go into a full probate. You're, you should hire a lawyer, otherwise it's gonna be protracted. Uh, there's gonna be expenses associated with the lawyer. There's gonna be expenses associated with the court. Uh, you're gonna to have to go through a, a probate appraisal. Uh, there's a lot of hoops to jump through, and it, it's messy. So. I always recommend you should put a trust together and avoid probate because you don't want to leave a mess behind for your kids. I have a question. Let's say you don't have a trust, but you have a will. And the will says, I want to give my home to 
this son and not the other son? Well, why we, do you have to go to probate? Well, wills need to be probated, mm-hmm. so only trusts can avoid probate. And um, in leaving one asset, a large asset like that, to one sibling is usually going to start some acrimony in the family. But it happens a lot, and there's various reasons for that. Perhaps you lent a bunch of money or gave a bunch of money to one kid, and you're leaving the house to the other kid. So usually parents are very fair in what they do, uh, but a will needs to be probated. So wills are kind of antiquated. In fact, I had recently somebody came in, and um, his wife had passed many years ago, and he wanted to get remarried, an older gentleman. And he didn't have a trust. He didn't have a will. And his kids were imploring about, uh, imploring him to get a will. And so he came in to meet with me, and I said, "Look, you know, based on the size of your estate and what you what you have, I said I think I would be committing malpractice if I created a, tr- uh, a will for you." I said, "You really need a trust, and here's why: avoid probate, uh, make specific designations as to your assets, take all the fight out of it. Don't leave anything vague or ambiguous." Uh, but wills are antiquated. Modernly, we want to go into a trust. That answers a lot. Wills are antiquated. And is this a true statement that probate means a third-party person, as in the judge, is making the decisions, not the parents? Which is never a good situation. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Robin. A judge is never, not to interrupt, but a judge is never going to know enough about the family and the family dynamics. And so he's a stranger. And they have an enormous discretion in a probate. And you kind of want to avoid having a stranger make decisions for you. So that example that I gave, and by the way, for our listeners, I just made that up, um, <laughs> that example. But two sons, let's say, and the parent wants it to go to one son because the other one's already taken their equity or their inheritance out early by borrowing money time and time and time again. How does the, the, uh, how does the judge know that? I mean, does each side have their own attorney that goes to represent them? Well, they, sometimes they do. Usually the administrator of the, tr- of, the, of the will is going to have an attorney to navigate the court process, but oftentimes the other son or daughter don't have an attorney, but they're filing objections with the court. Uh, they're difficult to ascertain what their objection is. But more importantly, how does the judge know what evidence do you have to show the judge that one son has taken out or has been gifted money or taking, you know, has his distribution uh, distribution already before the probate, okay? You have to actually have to prove that. You can't just say, well, my brother got $200,000 from mom and dad already, okay? How do you prove that? Oftentimes, there is no evidence of that. And so that becomes a problem, and so the judge has to make a judgment call, and oftentimes he's going to split everything in half because there is no credible evidence. Yeah, and I would I would say also when you have the trust in place, and again, this is another thing, another personal experience, um, my mother's and father's trust clearly said, with great love and admiration, we leave nothing to, and it was a, a, a certain person in the family who had already basically gotten their inheritance through mm-hmm. through other means. From an escrow perspective, um, let's say buyer and seller open up an escrow through their realtors mm-hmm. and all of a sudden title dis- 
the title department discovers that, uh-oh, this is going to have to be probated. Be probated. Yeah. What kind of nightmares do, do you see from well, the escrow Well, I mean, the first and foremost, the, the first thing that an escrow officer has a hard time with is actually calling the seller or the agent and saying, this portion has to be probated or we, this has to be probated for whatever reasons. Um, we've, had, we've had situations where two people are in title as may, maybe as tenants in common, not joint tenants, which simply means if you're in title as joint tenancy, one, one uh, party passes away, the other one inherits the property completely, that no questions asked. Same thing with community property with rights of survivorship, okay? That, that is, that is um, ultimately what happens. What we come up with sometimes are two people are entitled as tenants in common or undivided interests. One of them passes away, that has to go into probate because they weren't in a trust, they weren't as community property with rights of survivorship, they weren't joint in joint tenancy. And so it's up to us, of course, to call the agent and the seller and say, listen, you can't sell this property on your own because the deceased party needs to go through probate. Their heirs need to be notified. There needs to be a, a process that happens. And so that's the first nightmare. The second one, of course, is, you know, escrow officers really want to help their customers. That's what, that's what they're trained to do. That's, those are the people that we hire. They want to help their customers. And if they feel that they're telling them something that they're not going to like to hear, it, it, it becomes a, a personal issue for them. And I always tell them, you know what, just, just tell them to contact an attorney and um, see where they can take it from there. I, I think escrow officers take a lot of unwarranted uh, flack Thank because you. they are the bearer <laughs> of bad news sometimes. Yes. And it, all they're doing is identifying issues that need to be resolved. Mm -hmm. Really, there is no bad guy. It's just a failure to plan prior to death. So I... Yeah, my heart goes out to them. <laughs> and, and, and one of the things I always tell my escrow officers is just because the escrow was opened with you does not mean that you have the authority to override anything, anything that um, title needs on this in order to issue title insurance. And uh, I'm going to piggyback on something Brian said about, you know, um, acknowledging an escrow officer's tough job mm -hmm. you off the escrow officer often has to give the bad news uh, that hey there's a title issue mm -hmm. or we're not gonna, we don't have loan docs yet we're not going to close even though your whole family's coming to town to help you move <laughs> yes, this weekend yes, yes whatever it is but unfortunately for escrow officers you don't get the good part the really, really good part of a transaction and that's when the realtor gets to hand the keys to the buyer. Um, that's what it's all about. Yeah. And, and to see the joy in their face and that, that little six-year-old girl running around her new home saying, this is my bedroom, this is it. Mm -hmm. So, but, but if all the escrow officers could picture that. That's what they help accomplish. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and there are many there we we have those conversations all the time. <clears throat> you you have to remember it's a very emotional process because this is the biggest purchase they will ever make and the biggest um, and the biggest windfall any seller will probably ever have, especially if it's just, you know, they've owned their property for 30 40 years. 
Mm-hmm. So it's um, and and the escrow officers are very aware of that. But yeah, it does become tough sometimes when you have those conversations that you have to have. But a good partnership between an agent and an escrow officer is is key. Yeah, absolutely key. I'll I'll buy into that theory. <laughs> um, all right. So we've talked about probate wills. What? Why is a trust able to go around all this? Well, it, it, it's designed to go around all this as from a matter of law, and it's basically an instruction manual to your kids. You know, this is what my wishes were, and I've memorialized them, and here's the instructions to uh, distribute my estate. This is what I want. The more specificity in a trust, the better, okay? Um, now, there's a dark side of trust as well. Um, if you have one trustee and several kids, um, there's the opportunity to have um, some fraud or uh, unequal distribution because the trustee has great power. Uh, there is no oversight by the court. So when you are creating your trust with your lawyer or however you're doing it, the more specific you can be, the better. Interesting that whoever you appoint as the trustee um, has a lot of power and could is this possible and do you see this happen where they say well i'm going to get it all sorry sisters and brothers i see more of it now than i ever have so the answer to your question is yes uh maybe they don't want to distribute the estate maybe they've moved into mom and dad's house and have moved their family in you see that quite a bit and they're dragging their feet about distribute uh distributing anything uh they collect the assets okay and um you know, when you sit down with mom and dad and you're creating their trust, when you try to tell them the more specific you, you the more specific you can be, the better, because you don't want to leave any fights behind you, because that's the last thing you want. Um, oftentimes they tell you, oh no, our family is a very loving family. I want to leave a lot of discretion to my son or daughter as the trustee. And uh, you have to explain to them and go through the kind of the horror stories that I deal with. Um, I don't want to say on a regular basis, but certainly we're dealing with more fraud and trust than we ever have. The world has changed a bit, as we all know. You know, Brian, our attorney had us put a will inside the trust. Yes. Is that is that more what you're talking about as far as um, well mapping everything out, like being very specific? Because we were very specific in our will. Right. Usually a, with a trust is going to come a pour over will, okay? Because oftentimes mom and dad forgot about an asset and it didn't get funded into the trust. Mm-hmm. And so the whole idea of having the will is it's going to collect whatever was missed or something that was added to their estate after the trust was, mm-hmm. was created. Mm-hmm. And so the pour over will is, is a safety net. It's supposed to collect the assets that mom or dad forgot about or they acquired after the trust. And then the whole idea of the pour over will is to send it back to the trust. So oftentimes you're gonna have to go in, there's gonna be some missed assets, you'll have to go into probate, but you're gonna get in and you're gonna get out because the probate court's gonna say, okay, we're gonna honor the wishes of mom and dad gotcha. and those things that were caught into the pour over, we're gonna kick back into the trust. And thank you very much. You're done. Great. All right. Thank you. And with that, we are going to our next commercial break. So stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio, 940 KYNO. Said if you want my two cents on making a dollar count, buy dirt, find the one you can't live without. 
Well, welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host, and we have Brian Catone here in the studio with us and Robin Bashirs, uh, escrow officer and an attorney. Uh, not that you are, Robin, but that's who we have in the studio, both <laughs> an escrow manager and a real estate attorney and broker. And we're, we're discussing how to take title, um, the difference between a will and a, um, uh, a trust. I heard a comment about a pour-over will. What could one of you tell me what a pour-over will is? Well, as I was explaining, when you, as lawyers, when we create trust, we'll also create a will, a pour-over will, to collect assets that either didn't get funded into the, into the trust or were acquired after the trust was created. So it's kind of a safety net. It's going to collect things that didn't get into the trust. And generally what those pour-over wills are going to say is put everything into the trust that's collected by this safety net. So that's how it avoids having to go to probate. You may have to go to probate, but you're going to get in and you're going to get out. The judge is going to recognize what happened, that there was something that was omitted by accident or was acquired later. And he's going to say, we're going to put it into the trust. And thank you very much. And you're out. All right. Now I want to get into a hot topic because as a realtor, I see this a lot where people say, oh, my sister has the power of attorney so she can uh, sign everything. Um, how... Tell us about power of attorney. What are they? Are they legal? Are they uh, insurable by a title company? So to, speaking to the insurable by a title company part, you know, um, one of the things that we run into quite often is that people state that there is a power of attorney out there. We have to see the copy of the power of attorney. It has to be recorded. Um, but also we're looking for certain things. We want to see if it was um, drawn up by an attorney. Um, most people, one of the things that Brian and I were talking about earlier during the break is um, some people draw their own powers of attorney. They just think that they can do that and they can have it notarized and it's good to go. We send those to our underwriters and our attorneys to um, look them over. And sometimes they will say, no, there's verbiage in there that clearly states they can't do something with the property or, you know, they're not allowed to, that they can, they can, uh, do stuff do do things with the finances what what these people have but it may not have anything to do with a uh, real property and so of course we will have to deny it and say you're gonna you're gonna have to get another power of attorney drawn by an attorney so that's where we run into the trouble so often is yeah it's a legal document mm -hmm. but it's not a title company is not going to insure the sale and why would a buyer want to buy something where the title's not insured? Correct. Therefore, it's you've created a problem with that power mm -hmm. of attorney. Mm -hmm. and, and I will say this, you can get a power of attorney online. Just, you know, go in there and Google power of attorney yes. and all these forms will pop up. Legal Zoom, all those. <laughs> yeah, but how do you know you're doing it right? That's where attorneys come mm -hmm. in, because you've seen a thing or two. Oh, yeah. Um, so a power of attorney, you're giving your rights to somebody else to act on your behalf. Generally, there's two types. One that has immediate effect, okay? So I'm giving, I'm giving Don my power of attorney. Uh, it goes into effect immediately. He can start signing on my behalf within the boundaries of the power of attorney. But generally, they're going to be for transferring real estate, sometimes even borrowing against real estate. 
stocks, checks, whatever the case may be, banking. Uh, then there's a springing power of attorney, which is the one I'm more comfortable with. Uh, that means that it doesn't take effect until mom or dad are incapacitated, okay? And generally the way we write those is it either has to be determined by their primary physician or by two doctors. In other words, son or daughter can't make that call, aunt, uncle, whatever. It has to be a doctor saying they're incapacitated, they cannot make decisions for themselves. Sometimes the incapacity is temporary, sometimes it becomes permanent. So those are the two types of power of attorney. Generally, when you have an attorney prepare your power of attorney, you're going to have a notary with them. You're going to have a couple of witnesses. They can either be witnessed by two people or they can be notarized. My practice is to do both. So we'll have two uh, witnesses that aren't beneficiaries, and then we'll also have a notary do it. When you have it done that way, like I said, generally speaking, the attorney and the notary and the witnesses are looking to see if mom or dad or whoever's giving the power of attorney are competent at the time they're executing the power of attorney. When it's done outside the presence of a notary or, you know, and it's just witnessed and it's done, there's no scrutiny, there's nobody checking to see if mom or dad were competent at the time. That's what the problems come and those are often litigated. Um, so that's my take on those. Power of attorney should, you should spend, it's not very expensive to have a power of attorney prepared by a lawyer, uh, and you should do it that way. It's a, a very important document. Yeah, and Brian brought up a, brought up a fact that, um, you know, when the parents become incapacitated, and what we often get more than not is the um, child or, or, um, or the uncle or the aunt or whoever is power of attorney comes to us and says, well, why do you need two doctor's notes? And we'll say, because it clearly states that in the power of attorney, and that was your parents' wishes that, that you get two doctor's notes before you, can, before you can execute on their behalf. And we get that argument all the time. We, we, we don't want to, and it's like, you, you don't have the authority. Well, I'm the power of attorney. It doesn't matter, you're not the power of attorney unless you have these things and that was your parents' wishes. It's a checks and balance. Yep. Yeah. Gotcha. How do you end a power of attorney? You can revoke it. You can issue, uh, grant another power of attorney. You should always revoke the prior one, but oftentimes you just see a later dated power of attorney, which will do the same. Right. How do you revoke it? Like, is it recorded? It depends. If the initial power of attorney is recorded because you need to have them recorded to transfer real estate, then you will record the revocation. Uh, otherwise, it's just a private transaction and usually your lawyer is going to keep track of it. You're going to give those to your clients as well. So they'll have a power of attorney, then they'll have a revocation of that power of attorney, and then usually they'll have a new power of attorney. I remember a situation a few years ago where um, we're trying to transfer real estate and somebody came up and said, but I'm the power of attorney. The other child said, no, that was given to you 20 years ago when mom and dad took that trip to Europe for a month. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I guess they decided to do a power of attorney while they were gone. Um, so now there was a conflict. Well, there should be something in the power of attorney that states when it expires. I know the powers uh, of attorney that we draw for our customers gives a one-year date, and that's it. It expires at the end of that year. Oh, that, that's good to know. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and sometimes, and correct me if I'm wrong, if the power of attorney is very old, 
some title companies won't yeah. accept it. They yeah. become stale. Mm -hmm. ah. Most likely we would not accept it, certainly not 20 years. So what I'm hearing, the, the bottom line here, it's best to have your real estate in a trust. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, power of attorneys are seldom good or useful is kind of the bottom line here. Mm -hmm. And um, a will is going to be probated, so you're gonna have to have a third-party judge who doesn't know all the family dynamics mm -hmm. and uh, make a decision. It'll probably be a logical decision. Uh, well, hopefully leaving the emotion out of it. <laughs> Maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, and, and also having the trust, um, you know, like Brian said, there would be most likely a durable power of attorney drawn up within that trust and the body of that trust. Mm -hmm. And so though the, that particular power of attorney makes decisions on behalf of you if you become uh, incapacitated or if you're sick or if you're dying. And so it will, it will give them the authority to make, um, make medical decisions on your behalf, not necessarily financial decisions, because that, of course, is under the trust. All right, and when we get back from our commercial break, we're gonna talk about the methods or manners in which you take title, such as community property, joint tenancy. So stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio, 940 KYNO. Welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host. And here in the studio, we have Robin Bashirs of Chicago Title, the escrow manager. We have Brian Catone of Catone & Associates, a law firm here in the Fresno County area. And we've been talking title, trust, probate, all that stuff. But now let's, in this final segment, let's learn about what's the best way to take ownership. Let's say there's a husband and a wife, and I, I think you can do a vehicle just by saying husband and wife. Um, you, you can, but there's, um, there could be ramifications to that because there's no, um, there's no titling as far as joint tenancy, community property, community property with rights of survivorship, or if they just want their, um, their interest divided 50%, 50-50. And tax, tax differences tax too. Yes. And by tax, we mean when one of them dies, um, what's the basis, uh, the, the new basis? So, well, to be tenancy, if one um, spouse passes away, the other one inherits the property completely, no questions asked. You simply file an affidavit, death of joint tenant. The the problem with that, or or what I think the problem with that is, you get. Um, $250,000 exemption um, on gain, correct, per person. In joint tenancy, you do not, you do not retain that 250 from your spouse. So now you're just at your 250 gain. So when you go to sell the property, we're talking capital gains. So when you go to sell the property, of course, you only get 250,000 um, exemption on that gain. If you're in community property with rights of survivorship or community property, you get your spouse's 250000 also. So now you've got a $500,000 exemption from capital gains So there's taxes. a capital gains tax advantage to Correct. not doing joint tenancy. Correct. All right. Um, and again, I'm not a tax person, and mm -hmm. you should talk to your tax person about this, but this is, this is 
what I, this is the one thing that I do know <laughs> yeah. that happens. Well, I'm right. sure you see it a lot. Yeah. Yes, with, with community property, you're going to get stepped up basis, okay? So in other words, the house is viewed at the time of your spouse's death, it's viewed at fair market value versus the price you purchased it for, which affects capital gains, obviously, as well. The right of survivorship, a community property with the right of survivorship, also you get stepped up basis on both parties' interest, the decedent and their surviving spouse. Joint tenancy with the right of survivorship, you're not getting stepped up basis on on half the property. Okay, you're only getting it on a portion of the property, mm-hmm. half of it. So that's a problem for capital gains. So ideally, husband and wife should be in community property with the right of survivorship. That's going to eliminate a lot of problems. It's going to lo- eliminate some tax issues, and you're going to get stepped up basis on the entire property versus half of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, I just had an interesting thought because I know many, many years ago, joint tenancy was the, the normal thing. But back then, you didn't see gains the way you've seen them the last 20 Correct. years. Well, you also didn't have the option of community property with the right of survivorship. Mm-hmm. That's relatively new and legal in the legal world. That's something that came into play, at least in California, in about 2001. Mm-hmm. So prior to that, you didn't have that option, and which is a great option and is the preferred option. Interesting. What, somebody tell me, what is tenancy in common? So tenancy in common is you and I own a property, either 50-50 undivided interest or even maybe... Um, 90-10, I'll take the 90. Okay, you have the 90 and, and 10. So not an ideal way of holding property, but if you're strangers, you're not married, maybe you're partners or something like that, that's the way it's going to be held. Now, if you're partners, you're going to have a partnership agreement, ideally, and it's going to address some of the issues of how that property is managed, uh, who has right and title to you know rents and proceeds of, of that nature. But if um, if you're married, you, you don't want to hold it as tenants in common because you still have the issue of half of it needs to be probated. Ah, interesting. So tenancy in common might be good for a couple of unrelated people that are just business partners or. Um, buying a home together and um, they want their half to go to be to willed, their heirs to their heirs Correct. and not back to the other partner yeah so Correct. what we see is we see them taking it as undivided interests as tenants in common so they one party will say uh, um, uh, an unmarried man as to 75 percent undivided interest and an unmarried woman as to 25% undivided interest as tenants in common. Let me ex- give the realtor explanation for undivided interest. You can't say, hey, stay in your room. Right. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> right. The ownership is 75%, but the possession would be all of it. Correct. All Absolutely right. Correct. I just made that up, by the way. <laughs> that was good. I like it. All right. What about other ways of taking title? Um, wh- why is it important for uh, for a person who's taking sole ownership? They're the only buyer. Why is it important for it to go on to say that you're a single person or an unmarried person or a widower? What? So single person just simply means you've never been married. Unmarried means that you were married once before and for whatever reason you, you are you are um, unmarried now. 
Why so, is that important on title? That that is for us. It just um, it just simply states what's what's happened beforehand. As far as your as far as you being single, if you take title to the property as a single person, later on down the line you get married. Um, the the amount of money let me let me see if I can word this right the amount of money that you put into the house to purchase the house remains your remains your um, controlled money in other words the married person we look at it as the married person had nothing to do with it for example if you are now in if you are now selling your property and you used to be a single person and now you're married um, your spouse doesn't necessarily have to deed off that property and they don't actually have to be the seller of that property because you obtained the property when you were a single person with your own funds, with your own soul and separate funds. As an unmarried person, that would be different. We'd have to go to our underwriters and our, um, our, underwriters and our uh, title officers to see exactly what needed to happen in order for us to not have the new spouse sign off or to have them sign off or to have them sign a quick claim deed. I know that's a lot of information, but it's it's something that we actually deal with quite often. Right. Commingling funds as to as to um, funds, purchase money funds coming from one person or commingled funds. And I'm glad you said quite often because I was just thinking as you were explaining that that Man, I've run into this a lot mm -hmm. as a realtor where um, all of a sudden <clears throat> someone pops in and says, you know what, our divorce was never finalized. Mm -hmm. So I'm still entitled to half of that. Yeah, and it depends. If they, if they purchased the property as a single person and it was their own funds, they, there were no commingled funds, they, they may not have a leg to stand on mm -hmm. with that. So again, have to talk to attorneys, underwriters, and find out exactly where we go from there. You're, you're, you're trying to address whether there's somebody else that has an interest in the property, mm -hmm. okay? Ah, and, and so in, in, in this uh, scenario that Robin gave, maybe I bought my property as a single man, I wasn't married, but then I get married, okay? But I've paid off 70% of the loan. Mm -hmm. So 70% of the interest in that home remains my sole and separate property. Mm -hmm. But every mortgage payment I pay <clears throat> after I get married half of everything I earn is community property. It, it has an interest to my wife. So 25% interest in that property that I took as sole and separate is now owned by my wife. And so they have to come, the title company has to come and figure this out, okay? They may need a signature, they may need to know, there may be a dispute, maybe now I'm separated, I'm, I'm not divorced yet, and they have to figure out who are the interest holders in the property. And so that helps people understand what's going on. I see. Now, I told you this show goes fast in here, so you each have 30 seconds to give your best real estate advice. Can we start off with you, Robin? So as far as advice goes, you know, I, I, can, I can talk to you about title insurance all day, every day, and, and the importance of title insurance. When it comes to real estate itself, of course, I leave that to the professionals, to the agents, and to the attorneys. And so I always recommend if somebody comes in and has a particular question that is not title insurance related, or maybe we're telling them, okay, in order to get title insurance, you have to do this and this and this, we recommend them to the professionals to get that done. Thank you, Robin. Brian, how about you? Well, my number one piece of real estate advice is, is hire a realtor number one and interview a realtor, realtors 
uh, you would you would interview other professionals, and sometimes you don't see people asking questions of a realtor. Uh, you should shop around and find the realtor for you. Don't use necessarily a friend or family member. Get an experienced realtor in the area of the type of property you're trying to buy. All right. Thank you. And I thank both of you for coming in today and sharing your knowledge and your expertise with our listeners. And we want to thank our listeners for tuning in and learning along with me. So thank you. We'll be back again next Saturday, 9 to 10 on Welcome Home Radio. Thank you. Thank you.